1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, episode 133. And in this episode, we'll discuss about inflation. Is it bad? It's a buzzword that's been going around quite a bit lately. How long will this economic recovery last? Are we just printing money to the nth degree? What does it all mean? I've done a detailed episode specifically on inflation way back in episode 27. So you can go back and listen to it if you'd like. I thought it's a very prominent topic that's been talked about recently, and it's worth revisiting. If you want me to discuss a specific topic, or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or my Facebook page. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. The aim is to educate. To be educated and improving your financial literacy is really important. And that leads to the second aim, which is to be empowered with that knowledge, so that when you take that knowledge go to your accountant, lawyer, or financial planner or advisor. You can talk at a level that both of you can understand in. And ultimately, the third aim is to be entertained. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, or am I a financial planner? Make sure you take any of financial decisions after listening to one of my episodes back to your credentialed appropriate advisors. Now, in terms of broad principles, if you're stuck on what to do, here are some simple steps to get you on the right track when it comes to saving, investing and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is you've got to pay yourself first. You're the most important person in your life. You've got to take at least 20% of after-tax money and put it aside. Step two is you've got to invest that money, ideally into something you understand or want to understand. For me, I just invest in index funds and the stock market because I understand index funds and the stock market. Step three is wherever possible, when you get dividends, you have to reinvest them. The power of compounding after reinvesting dividends is phenomenal. And that leads to step four, is you got to do it for the long term. Now, traditional financial media say long term is five, 10 or 15 years. In my humble opinion, I think minimum, 20, 30, if not 40 plus years. Of course, the longer you do it, the better it is for you, which means the earlier you start, the better it is for you. Step five, my favorite, is wherever possible, you've got to automate. You've got to automate the pay yourself concept. You've got to automate the investments and you've got to do it forever. If you just do these five simple steps over the long haul, you're more likely to have more money than you'll ever need. And money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Now, before I go into the main topic of inflation, I had a really good question from Andrew who asks, hey Dev, is income protection necessary for both adults if you have both adults working in the family? That's a really good question. So thanks, Andrew, for that question. And I get this a lot, and it's absolutely important to discuss this. I'm going to break it down for you in this episode. Now, with personal insurance, you have four main types. Life insurance, total permanent disability, income protection, and trauma or critical illness insurance. Now, depending on the insurance provider, these are called slightly different terms, but essentially, they're the four main insurance types that you have. If you have dependents, and if you're relying on your income to pay the bills... It's absolutely vital to have personal insurance. The level of insurance, what type, entirely depends on your personal situation. But at a minimum, you need to have life insurance. But the question here that Andrew is asking is, do both working adults need income protection? Now, let's use an example to highlight this point. Amy is a 36-year-old doctor. Her partner, Dave, is a 38-year-old doctor. They have two children aged five and seven years old. They have a mortgage of about $2 million, have some super and investments outside of super in the stock market. But this isn't enough to cover their expenses in the event of one of them becoming ill. They also have two investment properties with total debt of about $1.5 million, which is negatively geared after accounting for some income from rent, etc. Amy has income protection insurance, with an agreed value policy of ten thousand dollars per month without super continuance option now she got that a while ago it's a level premium and she has had it for about five years plus dave on the other hand doesn't have any insurance at all including income protection every month they're able to save about 20 percent of their after-tax income and invest it in the stock market They also maximise their super of $27,500 per year in concessional contributions. Amy and Dave both earn approximately $300,000 per year each. The combined household income is therefore very high at a range of about $600,000 per year. So after all the expenses, their monthly after-tax income is around $32,000. Sorry, I didn't mean after all the expenses, I'm talking about after-taxes. That is the expense. So the combined after-tax income, after-tax, is $32,000. 20% of this is around $6,400 into their investments, which they do into the broad-based ETFs and index funds. And their income has been this high only for around two years, since they've both become consultant specialists in their chosen specialty. Now, unfortunately, recently, Dave is met with a health condition and it's required to be hospitalised. The prognosis is that recovery is going to take at least 12 months initially, but it depends on how he goes on his recovery as to whether he'll be able to go back to full-time work or any work at all. And remember, Dave doesn't have income protection. Now, as a doctor, this scenario is often not uncommon. I mean, we see patients all the time who are in this scenario, we're breaking bad news to patients 70, 80% of the time as a doctor, trying to help them through their illness. So although in this case, one would think they're very secure with their very high income, here is how not having income protection for Dave will affect their family. Number one, Dave is likely to require some care at home and is likely unable to care for their two children while recovering from his illness. Number two, this means Amy will either need to hire a carer full-time, which is quite expensive, and or reduce her workload in order to provide care for Dave. And number three is this is now a double whammy because Dave is not covered by income protection, which means he's got no income coming in. Sure, he's got some sick leave or maybe some annual leave perhaps that he can use, but if they are in private practice, they get none of that. And now Amy will need to reduce her income as well in order to try and manage the family. Now, let's say Amy needs to cut down on her work by about 50%. This means all of a sudden, the family income of $600,000 becomes $150,000 gross. Now, this is unlikely to be enough in order to service their loans. And they're not really in a position to live off their super. I mean... Because Dave's unwell, he can apply for compassionate release of his super. And they may be forced to sell their investment properties in the hope of making a profit. Now, depending on the market conditions, this is called market risk. Or they may have to live off their investments in the stock market, like sell it up or use up their dividends, which they can't reinvest anymore. Now, the biggest lesson here is Dave is uninsured. And they will need to compromise on their lifestyle maybe even sell some assets to fend off over the next 12 months of his recovery. Now, the obvious question is, but what about emergency funds? Surely they've sorted that out. And absolutely, look, I sort of generally recommend three to 12 months of income saved up as emergency funds, which would have been very handy in this particular case. And they will need to dip into their emergency funds in order to fund their lifestyle. And hopefully, they'll have about three to six months at least of income, not just expenses. And this acts as a buffer. But that's only for about six months or 12 months. Remember, Dave has to come back, recover from the illness, and be able to go back to his full-time work. And we don't know that. And the uncertainty is immense in this particular case. Now, let's say if we switch the terms, and let's say Amy got sick. So what happens if Amy got sick instead of Dave? Dave. Well, remember, Amy is covered with income protection, and if she's covered, then this lessens the blow for the family. It still means that Dave may need to reduce his work, but maybe not as much as 50%, and Amy's income protection provision of $10,000 per month is a welcome relief, and they're unlikely to require to sell all of their investments or the majority of their investments to pay the bills and hopefully they'll have some emergency funds as well, which will lessen the blow. Now, what happens if both have income protection? If both have income protection or some sort of personal insurance to get them through the illnesses, it just provides them with an added layer of security, an added layer of peace of mind. And this is especially true in this particular case because they have two children, they're two dependents who require caring. Now, I've spoken to some doctors that have two children and to other dependents like their parents that they need to support as well. So my answer to Andrew in this question is absolutely. If both parents are working, they both need personal insurance, income protection, particularly if they don't have enough assets to self-insure. Now, this becomes a lot easier if you don't have liabilities or debts or children who don't need caring. And this means that you can possibly have limited insurances or become self-insured. So hopefully this answers the question. Remember, you never make a profit from insurance. It's a losing proposition for you. And it's a peace of mind factor as well. And the question is, how much is your peace of mind worth to you? Now to the main topic, is inflation a problem? And what are some of the repercussions of it? Now, what is inflation? It just means over a period of time, the price of goods and services will increase. Another way of looking at this is your money today is going to be worth less in the future. Now, it's not going to be worthless, but it's going to be worth less. That is, your purchasing power reduces with time. And how do we market? What's the marker for inflation? It's called CPI, or Consumer Price Index. It means the price changes within a basket of goods and services over a period of time. Now, the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, calculate this. And the way they do it is to look at the price of goods and services across 11 groups, a total of about 84 categories. So what are these groups and what is their weighting? Number one is housing, weighted at 23%. Number two is food and alcoholic beverages at 16%. Number three is recreation and culture at 13%. Number four is transportation at 11%. Number five is furnishings, household equipment and services, 9%. Number six is alcohol and tobacco at 8%. Not sure what alcohol beverages are included in this food category that we already talked about because they already talked about 16% of that, but specifically alcohol and tobacco is 8%, which is a sizable sort of weighting, I would have thought. Healthcare is 6%, which is interesting that alcohol and tobacco is a little bit more weighted than healthcare, but there you go. Insurance and financial services, 6%. Education is 4%. That's a bit of a worry. That's quite low in my opinion. Clothing and footwear is 3% and communication is 2%. Now, I actually added all of this up and it checks out to be about 101%. Again, that could be possibly due to rounded figures that I've used. So let's use an example to calculate the inflation of a scenario. Now, let's use two categories. Let's say books in 2018 cost $10 and in 2019 they cost $10.50. The calculation of inflation is quite easy. It's $10.50 minus $10 divided by $10. And that works out to be around 5% inflation. Now, let's say the cost of clothing in 2018 was $20. But in 2019, it went up by $21.50. Now, the calculation of inflation for that is $21.50 minus $20 divided by $20, which is around 7.5%. That is, notice the inflation of clothing is higher than the inflation of books. But this is not CPI, because now we need to work out the weighting of these items in a household budget. Generally speaking, households spend more on clothing than books. So let's say the weighting for clothing is 70% and the weighting for books is 30%. Now, these weightings I've just made up. Then the CPI becomes 70%, that's 0.7 multiplied by 7.5% for books, oh, sorry for clothing, plus 30% or 0.3 multiplied by 5% for books, so the average CPI becomes 6%, seventy-five, six 6.75%, which is the true CPI. Notice that inflation can affect various goods and products differently. Whereas CPI is generally the market of inflation of all goods and services based on the weights of each basket or categories of expenditure. Now, is inflation really a problem? And what are the effects of it? Well, it is a problem because it erodes purchasing power. And this erosion happens across the board, not just in one goods and services, but it affects different goods or services in different ways. But the reality is money today is going to buy you more things if you used it compared to using it tomorrow for the same goods or services. And number two, this leads to more spending today. Now, because money today is likely to buy you more goods and services, inflation or the concept of inflation encourages people to use their money today rather than wait for tomorrow. Now, this means more expenditure like goods and petrol and recreational activities and holidays and more discretionary spending because you get more value for your money. Now, for businesses, it also means using any money today to expand their business, like hiring more people or making more capital purchases, such as new plant and equipment. Now, imagine if inflation didn't exist, people would hold on to their money more and more and not spend it. Now, we know spending is what drives the economy. So if people stop spending, Then the economy comes to a standstill. It's a feedback loop. This is the irony of pay yourself because what I do is I don't spend that money. I invest it into businesses which are represented in a broadly diversified index fund which represents companies which only exist if people spend money. The thing is, does this mean that I'm not contributing to the economy? And the answer is no, I am contributing to the economy because even though I pay myself 20% of after-tax income, and invest it, I still use the rest of the money, which is 80%, in some way to contribute to the economy, which then goes towards businesses. So it's a cycle we all take part in. None of us are technically able to save 100% of our income. It's impossible. So essentially, when I invest that pay-yourself money, what am I actually doing? I'm hedging against inflation. Now, if I keep the money in the safe deposit box, I know that money will depreciate over time. The nominal amount, the actual amount printed on that money is the same in 30 years, but its worth is a lot less thanks to erosion of purchasing power or thanks to inflation. By investing it, what I'm really hedging is I'm hoping the returns on that money is higher than inflation on average over the long term, in my case, 30, 40 years time. So now let's use an example to highlight this concept of inflation and hedging against it by investing in businesses or anything really. So let's say Amy starts investing in the S&P 500 index in 1981, about 40 years ago. I like to use long-term statistics because they're so much more powerful and you can resonate with it over the long term. So stick with me on this one because you'll be absolutely blown away. What sort of returns will she have gotten? Well, the total return of the S&P 500 since 1981 has been 3,668%, and that's an annualised return of 9.49%. But the total return with dividends reinvested has been 9,934%, with an annualised return of about 12.21%. Now, that's without inflation. If you take into account inflation, the total return is still 1,182%, annualised returns is 6.58%, and with dividends invested, reinvested is 3,313%. And the annualised returns then becomes 9.27% with dividends reinvested. So even with inflation, you can see the stock market as a hedge against inflation would have produced more returns. And that's why storing your money in a bank account or burying it underground under your mattress is a terrible idea. Now, again, why is this all important? Because again, if you had a hundred bucks and buried it in the backyard and didn't invest it in 1981, how much would it be worth today in 2021 in nominal terms? Well, it still says a hundred dollars on the bill, but the actual value of it is only 30 bucks. You've lost 70% of the purchasing power of that $100. Inflation. You got to learn it, understand it, and see how it applies to your personal situation. And that's why investing is really, really important. Now, doesn't that mean that inflation leads to more inflation? And the answer is technically yes, because if money is worth more today than tomorrow, then the urge is to spend it today than tomorrow. And this means more money is chasing potentially the same amount of goods and services and this means demand for goods and services is higher and this means the price of goods and services is likely to rise. Inflation. Now this can lead to a catastrophic cycle. So what happens is people will buy things they don't need and then keep it at home because goods and services are now worth more than money itself. This leads to empty shelves in the supermarket. Does that ring a bell? This actually happened in 2020 for toilet paper. The great craze for toilet paper. Who would have forgotten that insanity? Shelves didn't have toilet paper. People bought toilet paper and stored it and tried to sell it on eBay or try to make more money from it because the toilet paper was worth more than the actual money. Now, the problem is this sort of thing over a long period of time can lead to what's called hyperinflation. Countries like Zimbabwe and Venezuela have experienced hyperinflation before, so you've got to be very careful about it. And this leads to the next issue, which the RBA tends to use as a lever. That is interest rates. When inflation tends to become a bit out of control, and the RBA uses the concept called monetary policy by using interest rates as a lever. Here's how it works. You see, if interest rates are low, then people borrow more money to buy things or build things. This is what's happening with the housing crisis in Australia. Property prices are very high because money is cheap to borrow. If interest rates are higher or rise, then people tend to borrow less money. Rather than borrow money to invest, they tend to save money and put it into the banks and keep it in cash because they get more interest payments on it. Now money is valued more. And this tends to cool the demand side of things for goods and services. So, for example, businesses need to work harder to earn my business or intentions to spend money because I don't want to spend money. I don't want to buy things. I want to put money into the bank because I'm going to get good interest. So, what sort of inflation rate is ideal? Now, most countries aim for about two to three percent per year to keep that happy medium. And how does this process actually work? Well, Central banks in each country will rise interest rates and thereby issue government bonds which are higher interest rates. And this prompts companies and businesses and other governments and private citizens, perhaps, to buy government bonds with their own money. This takes away money from the circulation and converts it into government bonds. And this less circulating money means it makes money more valuable. So that's how governments use interest rates and monetary policy to try and take money away from circulation to artificially make it more valuable. Now, what about unemployment? How does inflation relate to unemployment? Does it reduce unemployment? And it kind of is. It does reduce unemployment for the short term. But in the 70s, they actually looked at this theory called the Phillips Curve, and it didn't really eventuate. So let's look at an example of how inflation can lead to lower unemployment. Now, Amy owns a business which produces goods and services. Let's say prefabricated sheets of metal for the steel industry. Business is booming because consumers are buying more and more products which incorporate steel into their products. Now, interest rates are low, so Amy is able to borrow more money cheaply to fund her business. And the issue is, Amy is simply not able to keep up with the demand. More people with more people and more money are chasing the same number of goods, and this is called the inflation cycle. It starts. Now, there are two options for Amy. Amy hires more people to help with the manufacturing of the goods, or Amy simply doesn't do anything and just rises the price of her goods. Now the first option is quite logical because you don't want to increase prices of goods and services too much otherwise competitors will step in now that inflation is higher amy looks at a payroll cost and realizes the real cost of a payroll is actually falling due to inflation so she can now afford to hire more workers now since other businesses are also in the same boat and they're trying to grow their business and they're worried about inflation the ads for such workers have higher and higher salaries and wages this means unemployment is likely to fall because people are going to get off their bottoms and change jobs and actually do work for a living because they're going to get paid a good amount of money. Now, as wages increase, this leads to the phenomenon we already discussed. That is, more people have more money chasing the same number of goods. This leads to inflation and the cycle starts again. The business production of goods and services never really catches up to the demand and the cost of goods and services almost always rise over time. And that's what the Phillips curve kind of explained. Um, And you can do some in-depth research if you like, if it helps you. And I hope this sort of provides a bit of a summary of how inflation affects the cost of business, interest rates, unemployment, and the cost of goods and services, and how it can relate to you as well, because you might have noticed some of the cost of things around you have gone up in Australia and in other countries as well. Now, Is inflation really a problem? And if so, who does it affect the most? In 2020, the world shut down. Production of goods and services wasn't high as demand slumped. As we open up, as we move more towards the vaccinated economy, industries are starting to fire up in their engines again. Countries are slowly opening up. Travel, is soon becoming normal in Australia particularly and it's already become normal in other overseas countries as more and more people get out of COVID economic slump. If the whole world comes to life very quickly in 2022, guess what? Supply chain bottlenecks, transport bottlenecks, tourism bottlenecks, manufacturing bottlenecks all happen at once and in fact let's face it, a lot of the world is starting to come back online towards the second half of this year. So these sort of bottlenecks are already starting to happen. And that drives up cost of production of goods and services, which is often passed on to consumers. This is called post-inflation. And this has kind of already happened in Australia in 2021. Um, I looked at the stats. Till June 2021 quarter, inflation in Australia was 3.8%. That's quite high. The automotive fuel sector saw the largest rise of 6.5% in 2021 financial year. Now, is this going to be a long-term problem? I don't know. No one can agree on that. It could be, it could be not. Who knows? People are worried if the government keeps printing more money then more money is chasing the same goods and services causing a rise in prices. We've already discussed this to death in this episode. Then the government may step in and use monetary policy to raise interest rates and the RBA Governor of Australia has already signalled that interest rates may not rise up until 2024 but if the economy overheats prior to that it may happen sooner. Which of course means businesses may not borrow as much money if the interest rates go up. And demand for goods and services will drop and businesses start to lay off workers. And this is one of the concerns with the government. If they rise interest rates, if they raise interest rates too quickly, it could potentially affect employment. I mean, that's the theory. Now, does inflation affect everyone? And the answer is no. Lower income families feel the pain of inflation a lot more than higher income families. Because if the price of consumer goods and services increases, this means a larger percentage of lower income family households is taken up by those common goods and services. Petrol, fuel is a classic example. I mean, I saw petrol prices in Melbourne this week of $1.83. It's insane. Now, this means lower income families have less disposable income. Higher income families, often during inflation times, make more money so it doesn't really affect them as much. But lower income families can hopefully get paid higher jobs, but it doesn't really catch up with the inflation. And the real people that struggle are the fixed income people where it affects the most, that is older people on the pension. Now the government doesn't increase the pension based on inflation very much, so their buying power can dramatically decrease. And what tends to happen is this leads to a K-shaped recovery in the economy, which kind of already has happened in 2020 and 2021. The haves have done well as they continue to do well and they continue to work from home during the pandemic. Their industries hasn't been affected that much. And the have nots mainly the manufacturing, the people that actually labour and go in and actually do physical work. They haven't rebounded from the economic downturn due to shutdowns and lockdowns or whatever it is. And this produces a K in the GDP graph. There's a curve that goes up and there's a curve that goes down. Now, that's about it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the inflation episode and hope you understand that it may be affecting you or someone you know. So, if you want to leave a five-star review, really appreciate it on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. Or leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. But please leave a positive review. I want you to actually leave a positive review. And in that theme, here is a review I found on Apple Podcasts from Tom Dongara, who writes, Easy and intelligent listening, a really enjoyable podcast, clear and concise, and the short structure allows for skipping over issues irrelevant to your situation thank you very much for that uh, five-star review. I really appreciate it. And hopefully a lot of my episodes are relevant to a lot of people. So hopefully you're not skipping too much of the episode. I really want feedback from the people that listen to these episodes because I do this because I do it based on questions that I get a lot. So, um, you know, this Every episode is targeted at specific people that have asked me questions and hopefully through that, the broader audience gets a bit of a picture about some of the basic concepts of financial principles so they can apply in their own life. That's the whole point of this podcast. Remember to like the DevRagga Facebook page and shout out to questions and comments or topic suggestions and share this channel with family and friends. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax income and put it aside because you're the most important person in your life and learn about inflation. See how it affects you. See how it affects the people that you know and love and have friends with. Talk about it. It's an important topic and it might actually come in handy. And remember, the reason why we do this, the reason why we invest, is a hedge against inflation. This is Devraga Personal Finance, episode 133, And as always, I think, by the way, tonight, before I finish up, actually, tonight is the last day of lockdown in Victoria, in Melbourne. So congratulations to all Victorians and Melbourneites. Uh, We're going to come out of lockdown tonight. And by the time you listen to this tomorrow, you would be able to visit your family and friends. So that's great. And as always, when you do that, please make sure you stay safe.